But good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're See? 
thank you that your grace is at work in us, resurrecting us through the resurrection of Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. And we come together today to declare your greatness and to give you thanks for what you are doing in us and in this world. So be glorified in our worship, in all that we do. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. It's great to see all of you here this morning. I especially want to welcome uh, our visitors who are here uh, from uh, Russia and uh, celebrating with us today. And we invite you to take a moment, share what a greeting with each other today. Good morning. Valley Nursery School was started in the fall of 1968 in what was known as the Rec Hall, which had been the village church building until 1934. I was a charter member as the youngest student that year, 1968, not 1934, and perhaps ever. Early on in its history, the school moved to the Christian Education Building here at Houghton Wesleyan Church. From the beginning, children from this congregation and the surrounding area attended together, setting the tone for the school to be both a ministry and an outreach. 
Today, Valley Preschool continues to meet on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings from 9 to 11.45 from September through May, serving three, four, and five-year-olds in the area. Our enrollment varies from year to year, but we typically have just over 20 children. Valley Preschool is one of the ministries of our church that happens a bit off the radar because of when we meet. Even though it's a ministry totaling more hours each week while in session than many others, our congregation rarely gets to see us in operation as you are working, attending school, and fulfilling your own callings in various ways during our school day. With that in mind, I wanted to take this opportunity to show you a glimpse of our activities through pictures, share some general information, and thank you for the ways in which you help me have my dream job. Despite the fact that most of you rarely see what we do unless it's during a stage of life when your children or grandchildren are attending VPS, this church family has faithfully supported the ministry of Valley Preschool through giving to our scholarship fund at multiple Christmas Eve services, paying the director's salary, and budgeting funds for us to use if, during a given year, our enrollment falls below levels needed to pay our staff. With the hope of increasing our visibility to this congregation and the surrounding communities, and wanting to offer help to all of our families in the face of rapidly increasing costs, we took an annual activity that we do with the children to a new level by holding our first-ever community-wide stone soup dinner. After much praying, learning, planning, and support from the VPS committee, I felt everything coming together and hoped that we would have at least 100 people and make at least between four and $800 beyond breaking even, enough to offset rising tuition costs by a couple of dollars per month per student. Because of our VPS families donating the vegetables for the soup, our expenses were only $354.79. On the night of the dinner, we served around 200 people and took in $1,862.79. I want whomever donated the 79 cents to know that it helped us to end with an even dollar amount profit of $1,508. Even though it will, again, cost us more per child next year to cover salaries, we should have enough funds available that we won't have to pass that cost along to those who can't afford the increase. We are so thankful to God and to all those who donated to help make this fundraiser a success and a blessing to our area families. Most of our annual activities are my favorite, but I think my very favorite is our Easter celebration. For weeks now, we have been learning about Jesus going around doing good and showing he cares about and can help people when they are hungry, scared, sick, sinful, and in every type of need. Each year on the Monday before our Easter break, I tell the whole Easter story from the Last Supper straight through the resurrection. There really are no good stopping places. This approximately 20 minutes is the longest we ask the children to sit and listen in one stretch. Almost without fail, they give their undivided attention as the events unfold. The next preschool day, we remember each segment of the story with our own Stations of the Cross Easter party. We wash their feet, remember the Last Supper, pray together in the church sign garden or in the prayer room, 
Practice reverence as we look at the cross in the sanctuary. Think about how the cool and dark of the church basement can remind us of the tomb and then burst forth into the light and sometimes sunshine of the outside. Please pray with me and my staff as we prepare for and communicate this story of God's love for these little ones in the coming weeks. There are many ways you can take part in this ministry. Please feel free to talk with me about opportunities during the remainder of this year or next year as we celebrate our 50th year. Student applications for the fall will be available in the coming weeks. I'm always happy to talk with people about Valley Preschool. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
Father, it's an awesome thing to think about your reckless love for us. Never ending. The ways in which your love is expressed to us in, in seeking us, yearning for us, going to the cross for us. Thank you. Father, we thank you that in your love you invite us to come to you with our prayers, to pour out our hearts, to acknowledge our need for you, and to find joy and hope and peace in you. This morning, Father, as we gather, we pray that you will, you will give comfort to all who are grieving today. We think particularly of Mike Jordan and his family at the death of his grandmother, Kay Lindley. This woman who's been a big part of the Houghton community for many years. We pray that you will bring comfort and your peace to this family and friends as they grieve. We pray for all who are grieving today in, in the various ways in which grief enters our lives, in which loss strikes us. We pray that we will know your presence in the midst of our pain. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with, with health issues. Lord, we ask that, that you will particularly bring your healing grace upon Leighton Saniseth, Elaine Keynes, Michelle Russell, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Bob Brown, Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, Beverett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Emily Cricklar, and so many others who are on our minds and our hearts today. Bring your healing grace to each one. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church, and particularly today, we thank you for Valley Preschool, for all of the, the children and, and workers who have been a part of this program. We want to give you thanks. We pray that what goes on in the preschool would, would have lifelong effects on these children and would lead them to a deeper desire to serve you and to follow you every day of their lives. We pray, Father, for other churches around us. Today we pray for the Belfast Free Methodist Church and Pastor Calvin Smith. May your grace be upon this, this body of believers as they worship and serve. Be glorified in them as your people in this place. And Father, we think of, of people, your church around the world. There are many, many teams of, of national leaders and servants who who are working and traveling in villages and towns all over the world, showing the Jesus film. And during this Easter season, we pray that this will be an even more effective tool to introduce people to the gospel. We pray, Father, that, that hearts will be touched and lives will be changed, not just in that moment, but from that day forward. As believers become disciples, and followers. 
Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters all throughout the world who embrace you and serve you and worship you at great risk, risk of their well-being, risk of their lives. We ask that you would protect them and give them courage. And we pray that their witness would bear more fruit than they might ever imagine. Father, we continue to pray for the millions of refugees throughout the world and for all those who are involved helping them. We pray, Father, that that they will know your everlasting love. And we pray that your people will be agents of hope and strength in the midst of these difficult circumstances. We pray, Father, for places of war and violence. We pray that you would bring peace. We pray for our nation, that you would particularly bless the leaders of our nation as they make decisions. And we ask that you would give them wisdom beyond themselves. And Father, we pray that you will continue to open our eyes to you and your presence with us. Give us grace to continue to trust you as we surrender to you. And we ask all of this through the mercy of Christ, who goes to the cross and who leaves for us the model of prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of the gospel. Matthew 27, 47 through 56. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died before were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened... They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The children are now dismissed to Children's Church and Junior Church. Moved by the sound of his voice 
seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my
What fears do you wrestle with? What are the things that keep you up at night? That nag at the back of your mind? You may not call them fears. Maybe you just think of them as concerns or things that make you a little bit anxious, a little bit worried. But if you really boil them down, there's an element of fear to them. Maybe it's a fear about um, your future. Maybe it's a fear about finances. Maybe it's a fear about your family. Maybe it's a fear of being able to, to finish your education. Maybe it's a fear about your job. I mean, the, the list is almost endless. I think one of the fears that, that we probably tend to maybe to not take as seriously as we should is that sometimes we have a fear about God. We have fears about what God may be calling us to. We have fears about what God may be saying, I don't want you to do that. We have fears about what it means to have God in our lives and the, the, the feeling of, of losing control as God speaks to us and works in us. And I think that this is something that you see in the center of what the disciples are wrestling with as they deal with these last few hours of Jesus' life. In the passage we read this morning, you will notice that, that there is no mention of the disciples around the cross. There are some women there. There are lots of people there. But you don't really get a sense that maybe the only disciple might be John. As he shows up in, the, in John's gospel. But the rest of the disciples are gone. And that's because in the previous chapter, in the garden, there's an encounter with soldiers and the representatives of the high priest. They come to arrest Jesus. And, and in that moment... When they come to arrest Jesus, the disciples are ready to take up swords and fight and defend Jesus. And Jesus says, no. He said, I'm, I'm here. This is, this is why I came. I came because I came to give myself. I came to surrender myself. And all that that means. And when the disciples hear that, they run. They desert him. Their fear gets the best of them. It's not as if Jesus hasn't talked about the cross before this. He's talked about his death many times. The difference is that was all theory. This is reality. We all know there is a difference between theory and reality. I find that to be the case when I do premarital counseling with people. 
You know, we talk about all these various elements of, of married life and, and marriage and, and the different things you have to think about and, and do. We go through this long list of things. And, and most of the time, all the conversations are, yes, we agree with you. Yes, we get it. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, it's not that they're trying to, to you know, just kind of say what they think I want to hear. They really do mean that. But one of the things I've discovered through the years is that one of the most valuable decisions I made a number of years ago was that a part of premarital counseling is that I always reserve a couple of sessions for postmarital counseling. So a month or so after the wedding, I contact the couple and say, hey, let's get together. And it's fascinating how the conversations are different before the marriage and after the marriage. Because beforehand, it was all theory, and they're doing the best that they can to understand it and to figure it out. But afterwards, now it's reality. And the conversations tend to be very different. And the disciples are facing reality as they stand in the garden. They've heard Jesus say all these things, and they're thinking, well, I don't really agree with that, I don't understand it, but we'll deal with that. And now they're having to deal with it. And when they begin to realize that this actually is what Jesus is going to do, that he's been serious about it, that his whole purpose for coming is to surrender himself, the fear gets the best of them and they run. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples. He asks them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah. They're throwing out all kinds of things. And Jesus turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, that's been revealed to you by my father. There's no way you could have thought of that on your own. He says, it's on that truth that my church will be built and the gates of hell will never destroy it. And just a little bit later, Jesus starts talking about the cross. He starts talking about his death and his sacrifice, his surrender. And now Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. He says, don't talk like that. That's not the way you do things in this world. This is not how things get done. He says, heaven forbid, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, this is why I came. He says, from that moment, Matthew says, from that moment on, Jesus is speaking about his death. And now it's become reality. And in speaking of that incident, Dennis Kinlaw says that, that the disciples could accept Jesus' personage but they couldn't accept his purpose. They could accept, they could believe that he is the son of the living God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. They are beginning to see that and understand that. What they can't grasp is how he's going to accomplish the purposes of God. Because we don't tend to hold parades and celebrations for people who are burned at the stake. Or for people who are hung from a gallows. Or people who die on a cross. 
We love heroes who give themselves away in a blaze of glory. But this is something completely different. And you can understand why the disciples are struggling, because so do we. And I think part of the disciples' struggle in the garden is they're hearing echoing into their minds the words of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. But when you stand in the shadow of the cross, when the shadow of the cross falls on us, what it's telling us is that the very definition of discipleship is surrender to Jesus. The very definition of what it means to be a Christian is to give ourselves to Jesus. Matthew Bates has written a book, I've just, you know, just about finished reading it, called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And I think he makes some profound statements in that book. And one of his key points is that we tend to think of being a Christian is believing things about Jesus. And that's important. But that's not really the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Because when you read the New Testament, the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When everybody else misses it, they get it. Being a Christian is giving our allegiance to Jesus. Acknowledging that he is the king and that everything about our lives is in surrender to him. And we live in obedience. Our actions tell people and tell ourselves and tell him... He's our king. It starts with a belief, but it always moves into surrender. It moves into allegiance. It moves into loyalty. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because when you read the Gospels, Jesus rarely, if ever, says, believe in me. What he says is, follow me. And that's the call of the cross. That's the gospel. When we have a hard time believing that, our fears have a tendency to tempt us to want to fight for Jesus instead of surrender to Jesus. You see that with the disciples. In the garden, their fears get the best of them, and so they start swinging swords. And Jesus says, that's not what this is about. It's not about fighting for me. It's about surrender to me. The shadow of the cross is calling us to surrender. And the church, I mean, it's not as if we don't have weapons to use. We have lots of weapons to use. The church through history has used all kinds of weapons, just like everybody else. And we still use those weapons that other people use to get what they want and to accomplish what they want. We have wealth and power and influence. We have the ability to, to change people's minds. We, and, and one of the things that concerns me about the church in America particularly is that it feels like sometimes our primary purpose is to try and force people to treat us well. Sometimes our, our, our primary purpose seems to be to protect Jesus. And it's one thing to stand up for the truth. We ought to stand up for the truth. It's important to stand up for the truth. But sometimes it feels like maybe it's more about protecting ourselves. 
And while I want everything within me wants to protect myself, the most common feeling in the world, in the shadow of the cross, what we hear Jesus saying to us is, surrender yourself. It's hard. Jesus says to his disciples, when Peter starts swinging swords, he says to him, look, don't you know I could ask my father? And he could send legions of angels to rescue us from this. Don't you know I have the resources to stop this anytime I want to? But that's not the purpose. I want, what I want is that being a follower of Jesus means that God cuts us some slack, that life is easier, life is less complicated, life has less pressure. Life has less opposition. I I would think that there ought to be some benefit, right? It seems to me sometimes that it's exactly the opposite. That the more committed we are to following Jesus, the more the enemy fights us. But then Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they try to kill me, they're going to work against you as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Because when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Sometimes people who are not Christians have a a better handle on that than we do. I was listening to a a sermon a few weeks ago, and and they were telling about, uh, the the person preaching was telling about uh, a book they read a number of years before. Uh, about it's an autobiography by an atheist, a communist, Marxist here in America. And, and in the midst of this autobiography, the, the person was saying that they'd had a couple of, of really of moments in life where they, they weren't sure they were going to be able to keep going. The pressure, the stress, the difficulty, the pain, the struggle was so great. And this person writing said, it was in the, in the second one of those moments, he said, I almost got, I almost prayed. I almost got down on my knees because they said for them to pray is to get down on your knees, which I thought was an interesting observation. There is something about coming to God on your knees that they thought this is sort of what praying is about. And they said, you know, I, I, I thought to myself that maybe I ought to pray. Maybe I ought to get down on my knees. And he said, if I had done that, maybe I said, I'm sure I would have gotten up a different person. And maybe I would have gotten up a better person than I am. He said, but eventually I decided not to. And this person writing said, I'm glad that I didn't. Because I had this suspicion that when I got up from my knees, I would have lost me. 
And the person telling the story said, that is one of the most profound theological statements I've ever read. They sort of get what we struggle to get. That when you, when you come to God, you are in essence giving up yourself. And it was too much for this person to do. And the reason we struggle with that, the reason that's such a difficult thing for us is because deep down in the recesses of our mind, we struggle to believe that God is who he says he is. Something in our minds, something that the evil one tells us is that in some way, God is the enemy. God's going to ask us to do things that we don't want to do. God's going to ask us to go through things that we don't want to go through. And it's not going to be worth it. I'm convinced that everything about life, everything that's important, maybe everything about life, is rooted in our view of God. Our decisions are rooted in our view of God. Our attitudes are rooted in our view of God. Our actions are rooted in our view of God. Everything about life eventually is rooted in our view of God. And when we struggle to to believe that God is who he says he is, those fears overwhelm us. Because we can't see that God may have something better for us still ahead. I think that's what the disciples are wrestling with. I think that's what disciples have wrestled with through the ages, including you and me. But here's the here's the, the ultimate message of the cross. That when you stand in the shadow of the cross, not only do, do we sense the call to discipleship as abandonment to Jesus, but we also find that in the shadow of the cross we have the greatest experiences of God's grace. This is a place of grace and mercy. This is what God is willing to do for us. This is who God is. This is what we can bank on and count on. And it fascinates me that when you read through the scriptures and you look for passages that talk about shadows, there are a number of them that are like these. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And Isaiah says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. You're my people. You're my people. It kind of sheds new light on the... The first verse of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Maybe we could say the Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall I fear? One translation says the Lord is my light and my salvation. So why am I afraid? 
Why am I afraid? Because God is who he says he is. We don't have to be afraid. Our fears are real, no doubt about it. But God welcomes us into the shadow of the cross to find grace. I heard a story recently about a woman who uh, was a, an extremely accomplished violinist. She had risen in, in, in the, the ranks of, of the music world and, and was, was so well-respected and, and was greatly admired for her talent. And she was a committed Christian. And said one day, God, she heard God saying to her, in the, in the way that God can speak into our hearts, and God said to her, I want you to give me your violin. And she said, well, Lord, I gave you my violin years ago. He said, I know, but what I really want is for you to give it up. And she said, Lord, you want me to give it up? Lord, the violin's my life. And the Lord said, yeah, I know. I want you to give it up. She said, I agonized over that for a long time. I agonized. I said, Lord, Lord, if I give up the violin, I'll have nothing left. And he said, I want you to give it up. And she said, eventually, I came to the point where I said, okay, Lord, I trust that you are who you say you are, and I'll give it up. And the person who she was, to whom she was telling this story asked her, so did anything change? Anything happened when you made that decision? She said, oh, yeah. She said, when I decided to give it up for the first time in my life, I was free. So for the first time in my life, I owned my violin instead of my violin owning me. She said, I had insured my hands for a great deal of money because I knew that if if I lost the capacity to use my hands, I would have lost everything. And she said, I lived in constant fear of that happening. But she said, when I gave it up, she said, what I really gave up was the fear. When I heard that story, I thought to myself, surrendering to God in the shadow of the cross is really simply trading fear for freedom. It's trading fear for freedom. We all live with fears. It's part of our human nature. We wrestle with them. We struggle with them. But in the shadow of the cross, in the grace of God, can you get a glimpse of what surrender might mean? What is it? What is it that God may be asking of us? What fear? 
he want to turn into freedom? Holy Father, you know our, our wrestling, our, our struggling. We thank you for the cross that gives us hope. That your designs for us are greater than our designs for ourselves could ever be. Give us the courage, the hope to entrust, surrender, and find freedom in life. Amen.
Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.